you know, Disney is not being slowed down at all by this quarantine. They are. Oh, my God. Is this Robin Hood? Are we talking about Robin? Oh, my God. See, I told you there was something <laughs> that to talk about. I was so floored by this. Oh, my God. I am. I am both surprised and not surprised at all that they're doing this. So we're talking about, like so for people who haven't been like slavishly reading um, movie development news. Uh, Disney has decided that they're going to add Robin Hood to the list of their animated movies that are going to be remade. The issue with the animated Robin Hood that Disney is remaking, though, is that it's an animal Robin Hood. We're not dealing with like the classic humans bouncing around Sherwood Forest kind of thing. This is going to be like a fox and a bear playing, you know, Robin Hood, Little John. My only question is, is Robin Hood going to wear pants? Well, uh, I mean, the original animated character didn't. But is is he going to wear clothes at all? Yeah, is he going to have genitals? Well, the Lion King's animals didn't have genitals, so... So are they going to fix that now to make it anatomically correct? Well, we know they won't. That's my burning question. They'll just do, you know, these are going to be like androgynous animals that also wear clothes and, you know, use bows and arrows and live in castles and stuff like that. But they'll look like real life animals. So it's going to be every problem that I had with the Lion King remake by Jon Favreau, but made worse because it's going to be vaguely kind of like the furry community. (laughs) Better question. Do you think it's going to bomb? It won't bomb because it's Disney. I mean, their their definition of bomb is weird anyway, because, you know, if a movie makes only twice its budget, which normally would be a success, it, it, that's considered a failure for Disney. So um, would you consider Aladdin a, a failure or a success, though? I mean, I don't think Aladdin made what they hoped. It wasn't a, a Lion King, for example, like Lion King crossed a billion dollar or like I think it hit like a 1.3 billion or something like that. Aladdin hit a billion too, actually worldwide. Okay. Yeah. But the goalposts keep moving on that. I feel like Disney is less impressed with a billion dollars these days. <laughs> Fair enough. Like Avengers just ruined everything, huh? I suppose. Yeah. They can still do it in CG. They just have to be less realistic. Right. If they go too realistic with the CG animation... You're not going to get the kind of like emotiveness or the connection to the characters that you got in the original 2D animation. Right. I agree with you. There's a fine line between being realistic, but you can't be realistic and cute at the same time. So what was supposed to be a cold open is now like an open, like a full on segment. Just just edit it. Just edit. (laughs) Uh, But let's start the show. Welcome to episode 72 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love movies and TV. Thanks for coming on back for another uh, quarantine episode. Uh, We are still stuck at home, but we are streaming stuff left, right, and center. So this time on the show, we're going to be talking about two Amazon shows. Uh, The first one is Undone from uh, the creators of BoJack Horseman, and Tales from the Loop, which is an interesting one that just premiered a couple of days ago on Amazon Prime Video. And then after that, we're going to talk about a couple of movies. Uh, First, Tiger Tail, which just hit Netflix a couple of days ago. And then uh, circle back to another Netflix movie from uh, the fall that uh, I finally got around to watching. Jason watched it a little bit uh, before me. Dolomite is my name. So without any further ado, joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. Um, So Undone. This uh, this is something that I I saw the trailer for maybe I want to say like maybe three months ago 
uh, when it was first right. uh, being teased as like an um, upcoming Amazon original. And like immediately it kind of grabbed my attention because it has a it has a couple of things that I really love to see. Surreal visuals mm-hmm. is something that like rotoscope. Uh, well, not not well, like rotoscope as well, but but yeah, the uh, like just surreal images, like kind of um, uh, Salvador Dali kind of stuff, like oh yeah, people right. popping people popping into landscapes where they shouldn't be, and uh, you know reality pulling apart. Like I I just love looking at stuff like that in general, like whether it's like art or movies or TV or anything. Um, and then, like you said, the the rotoscope animation that they uh, use for this and rotoscoping is where you take you shoot a scene in live action and then uh, in post production you go in and you very meticulously paint over the real life uh, images until it takes on like a very dreamy um, kind of painted quality and it's animated, but uh, it has the the shapes and the definition of live action. Um, so it, it the this the show Undone had both of those things. And a couple of like a few actors in the cast that I really liked. But um, did you end up watching it because I said I was already watching it? And you just wanted to kind of be in the loop or had you heard of that this uh, show before? Yeah, I felt missed out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I had actually heard of it, but it sort of completely escaped my mind. And then you mentioned it and I was like, oh, well, OK, well, instead of each of us talking about something that we saw independently, maybe it's something that we can discuss together. I'm seeing my dead father. I wasn't in an accident, I was killed. And he's training me to travel in time. With your ability, we can change what happened. So I can save him from being murdered. Uh, You're pushing yourself too hard. What are you doing to me? I can't do this. I can't keep ending up places, seeing stuff and missing things. It's a relatively short series, so eight episodes of like half an hour each, so four total hours-ish, give or take. And uh, I finished all in one sitting. Um, I agree with you, the visuals are quite striking. So the first thought I had was, whoa, this is a scanner darkly. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah, Richard Linklater. Yeah, so that's a that's a rotoscope animated film as well, and it didn't really sell particularly well at the time. And I remember watching it, and I think it's like uh, 20 years old now. And I remember it being kind of off-putting. So actually 2006, Scanner Darkly was released. So I remember it being pretty off-putting. So I was kind of skeptical about this kind of um, animation because it sometimes it has a bit of like an uncanny valley sort of feel to it. It works in a Scanner Darkly though because the, the, the kind of the theme of Scanner Darkly is very much about like people being uh, dissociated from their own identities and stuff yes. like that. So I think like in the right story or the right narrative that um, animation style can work really, yeah. really well. Uh, the, the th- I, just like a minor point about Scanner Darkly but if I remember correctly like some of the faces had like different shades to it yeah, because the 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 story has something to do with like uh, cops trying to hide their identities with this sort of like invisibility cloak kind of thing. Right. So their fate the 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 faces um kept changing shape. Like there are certain blots of their face that are like where the skin tone is darker than the other, and it's constantly shifting and changing. And I found that really distracting. Mm-hmm. I didn't find it that nearly as distracting as an undone. Although I have to say, like I almost quit after episode one. Um, not because of the animation, but because the story felt so cliche to start with. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the story is about Alma, played by Rose Salazar from Alita Battle Angel. And she is the daughter of a university professor 
who um, is believed to have died in a car accident, but comes back to her and tells her that I've been murdered and tell, also tells her at the same time that she is sort of this shaman, this this um, individual with um, indigenous blood who can travel through and bend time. And so Jacob, who's played by Bob Odenkirk, um, asks Alma to travel back in time to figure out A, who killed him and to prevent the supposed murder. Yeah. So there's a bit of like a change the change the past kind of back to the future esque thing. Yeah. Very like. Yeah. So it, from that is very cliched. Uh, the first episode, though, we're introduced to Alma, who is like at this point a bit of a self-destructive character. Um, so I kind of like the screw up in the romantic comedy where like nothing in their life is together. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are this like really strong willed, really intelligent, really sarcastic type character and she gets in a fight with her parents uh some of which which i think is her fault and she gets in this car accident and suffers his brain trauma and then suddenly you know develops this talent uh that's when it starts to get good there's also this subplot about her sister becca getting married which i didn't care for at all i, I don't know how you felt about that <laughs> but it felt tacked on like it felt like it just forced Alma to be at certain places at certain times, knowing that she can't be there to just raise the stakes of her journey. Yeah, I, well, I think uh, the way I read it was that um, the Becca storyline is supposed to be a constant uh, reminder to the way Alma was feeling in the first episode where, you know, she was in a decent pop place in her life. You know, she had... Um, a loving boyfriend, she had a stable job, but she felt like she was stuck in a rut and she felt like every day was the same and she worried that that was going to be the rest of her life. You know, she's going to spend 40 or 50 years just kind of uh, repeating the same cycle. And meanwhile, her sister is engaged to be married, but is totally happy with kind of being in a, in a very stable routine and doesn't question it at all. So I think the two of them are kind of the two stories run in parallel so that uh, Alma is always being kind of uh, Alma's life is a kind of like a foil to Becca's or the other way around where um, it's kind of implied that uh, if Alma decided to give up on her mission, she would just kind of fall back into a life kind of like what Becca's dealing with. Right. Fair enough. That Because in the first few episodes uh alma and sam have this conversation about what their future would look like and alma flatly rejects any sort of future where it involves her settling down and and them having kids yeah yeah and i think that's um you know that motivation is kind of coming from uh her father who was always trying as a physics professor she didn't know a whole lot about him before he died but she knew that he was kind of relentless in his pursuit of knowledge and he didn't want to kind of uh live with the status quo and he felt like there were other answers out there so there's uh, i think that's uh, almost character kind of picks up on those uh that same kind of uh thirst for more um, and maybe she's not able to kind of put it into words, but, um, but yeah, like it right. over okay. the, the eight episodes, you do get a couple of kind of, uh, different arcs that are kind of like, uh, connected together. Um, and there are times where you're like, you're kind of cringing a little bit because you can see Alma making a really bad mistake in her personal life or, you know, endangering the kids at the school that she works at because she's not, you know, she's focusing too much on this kind of shamanistic uh, mission that she's on. And you're like, you're wincing a little bit, but 
I don't know. Ultimately, it did. It did kind of pull itself together. It didn't feel too melodramatic. Um, and I love the visuals. I thought, you know, the the using the rotoscoping uh, to kind of uh, make the the real life images feel like a dream image and kind of manipulate space and time. It felt it was very effective. It was it was very effective. Um, just not in episode one because they had set everything up. I think the big struggle conflict for me that was most interesting was the one in herself where she's constantly fighting between the fact that she's either a time travel traveler a legitimate time traveler or someone who's just schizophrenic and it's heavily implied that there is a family history of schizophrenia right and my half-assed internet research tells me that one of the co-creators kate purdy also um had a similar battle where she has uh, a history of schizophrenia in her family and when she was a writer on cougar town which was like this this show quite a while ago she also had kind of had like a mental breakdown and and had sort of similar episodes so i oh, think this is partly biographical for her especially since it's based or set around texas and mexico san antonio um which i believe is where kate purdy went to school so i agree with you the rotoscoping when it when they're when she's like battling between the schizophrenia and the time traveling in her head the rotoscoping works um i would just say the first episode doesn't really set you up properly for what's about to happen because there are certain parts that are very very trippy yes yeah and the one thing i wanted to ask you though is the ending like this has been renewed for a season two but had this show been just the single season would you have been happy with the ending? I think I would, but it's clear that they they were pretty confident that they would be able to continue the story because it's it, it's fairly open ended what uh, what ends up happening at the end. Yeah, it's so open ended. I was I was so surprised, and I think um, part of almost character too is that I feel like she forgives a little too easily. So I, we're going to spoiler territory here, but by the end of the the show or the season. She basically forgives her dad. She He's like, I see what I did now. I am a different person. Um, I, I know my past mistakes. Um, but Alma is really quick to believe that. And similarly, she's very quick to forgive her boyfriend, Sam, when she comes out of her coma. And Sam, who she had broken up with before the coma, comes back and still pretends that they're in a relationship. And then afterwards, they have a big fight. And she's like, you know what? nobody loves me more than you do fine i'll take you back and i'm just going what he he totally disrespected you and lied to you for an entire time like i feel like i've seen this in a rom-com somewhere and i feel like the female character is always too easy too willing to forgive yeah i mean that's that's a valid point for sure i mean you um uh you've definitely seen a lot of female characters kind of um kind of sweep their significant others uh misdemeanors under the rug if it means keep keeping right. the thing together but there is a brief scene in the in that uh sequence where the you see how she's using her kind of time travel powers to kind of travel back to sam's childhood both like either in india or pakistan some like that part of the world and uh then when he came over to san antonio as a kid and was kind of getting bullied for being a different race and that kind of stuff um the so I think she she got some empathy for him that she didn't previously have. Um, so that might have. But I feel like that's not a good enough reason to forgive him for that. No, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Because the just just because he he was kind of bullied as a kid doesn't 
give him a, a free pass to you know exactly uh, deceive her when she's ill and that kind of stuff exactly so the last scene is becca goes on this like basically vision quest where she steals um her mother's car or alma does oh sorry alma yeah so she she steals her mother's car and then she drives to mexico to this like place and she's supposed to this is where like the two timelines she's created are supposed to realign and if her mission is successful jacob's gonna come back alive and walk out of this cave um the ending shot is of a close-up of her face looking at the cave that is just and there's this it's either the sun or the cave is glowing and her face just lights up like she's there's something unexpected that she sees. So right. do you think Jacob comes back or is there something else? I don't know. It's 50 50. I mean, it's either 50 percent chance. Well, of course, what, yeah, what we're seeing is real doesn't. and, you know, um, or 50 percent chance. It's just her kind of illness mm-hmm. taking over. And, um, you know, she she believes of what she's seeing, but it isn't real in quotation marks like it isn't real in the the broader mm-hmm. sense of the word. Um, but the I it's funny, too, how I I ended up watching this. Well, you, you end up watching it, too, in all one shot. But um, right around Easter weekend, because there's some very strong Easter symbol symbols built into mm. this whole mm-hmm. season of TV, like um the a lot of the action takes place around Easter itself. You see uh, Alma's mother, uh, who's like a staunch Roman Catholic, going to an Easter vigil service, and uh, she kind of she she's asked to light the Paschal candle at the church at, at the vigil service, and uh, uh, then the that final scene that you were talking about has some huge callouts to kind of like the Easter uh, Bible story of. Uh, you know, Jesus rising mm-hmm. from the dead and that kind of thing. And, you know, coming out of the cave and I, you, there's, there's a lot of very obvious kind of uh, symbols at play there. I don't, I don't think they're trying to make it like a specifically Christian mm-hmm. allegory. Obviously they, they're building in aspects of indigenous religion as well. Um, but it's interesting that uh, it just so happened that uh, it's Easter right now. And uh, we're watching <laughs> this at the same time. It's kind of like one of those, one of those fun kind of like uh, moments where, uh, you there, there's definitely like a lot more Christmas stuff that you can watch around Christmas time. Probably a lot less Easter stuff that's less specifically Christian. So um, it's kind of it's kind of fun when you get a different holiday kind of syncing up like that. Um, on a final note, so it didn't lose you after episode one, where you're like kind of skeptical about how this is gonna go because the whole like time travel through time to solve a mystery or prevent a murder or something like that is just. It's so, I feel like it's so overdone. Like you look at 12 Monkeys, um, Frequency, which is like a, a movie 20 years ago, which is basically the same thing. Uh, Back to the Future had it, About Time, that romantic comedy, Looper had it, mm. even Harry Potter had it. So I don't know. Um, what were, like, what compelled you to continue? I don't know. I think I, I connected to the character. I thought that, you know, granted there's some like kind of recognizable rom-com type uh, cliches in there, but uh, <laughs> I, I liked that it was a you know it was a millennial type character who was living in San Antonio, which isn't a, a part of the world that you often see in in uh, TV shows or movies. I did like the little touch about how they all hated the Alamo. Yeah, 
and and, uh, and then there's the bit about uh, how she's uh, she's hearing impaired. She needs a, a implant in, in her uh, right. in her head to be able to hear. And again, like it's that's a that's a detail kind of like being set in San Antonio or dealing with mental illness. It's it's something that is it's just an extra little detail that they didn't have to include, but they de- decided to in an effort to kind of like I don't know, be a bit more inclusive, be a bit uh, try to find new ways to tell stories. So right. there was just a enough of those little tiny kind of touch points that I was like, oh okay, I don't feel like I'm watching the same old thing okay all right fair enough um but you also watched something else actually time traveler yeah there's a bit of time travel in this show so this is another uh, series that's brand new on amazon prime video and it's called uh, tales from the loop and it unlike a, a lot of uh, media that we get you know f- pretty much since the dawn of movies uh this is not based so much on a book or a play or anything like that but it's actually based on paintings and they're paintings by um, a Swedish artist, uh, Simon Stallenhag. And uh, he is a kind of a retro futurist uh, painter, a digital artist. And he's been he's like 35, 36 years old and been working in Sweden for a while. And a lot of his art uh, depicts kind of near future societies or societies that look very much like our own. Okay. But then they have aspects of like high technology that are that's kind of like rotting away or decomposing right. as part of the composition so you'll see like a a a highway that has uh, some sort of like rusting robot that's kind of like slumped over it or you'll see a, a scene of a farm with like a young girl who's uh, using some sort of like cybernetic thing on her arm to control a robotic um piece of farm equipment right and so it's it's all about the kind of like juxtaposition of everyday stuff with super high technology stuff Mm -hmm. and how nobody kind of acknowledges how crazy it is that they have access to all of this this technology and that it's old and rusted and looks used Uh uh-huh so they decided to build a show around this for amazon and the series is uh it's 10 episodes and i've watched uh about half of it now and each episode is a solid like 54 55 minutes and it's kind of like an anthology series in that um sort of like black mirror in the sense that um each episode is about a different character but all the characters live together in the same town um kind of in the midwest and they they live over top of a underground research facility that uh, was founded by a guy uh, played by Jonathan Price, who Ooh. some people will remember from uh, recently from uh, the two popes, um, but also uh, stuff like Brazil and uh, many, many other things. What do you do? When someone says something's impossible, I prove it's possible. Not everything in life makes sense. This scientific research facility kind of like cern in in uh, switzerland with the particle accelerator uh they've been unlocking secrets of the universe but well beyond our concept of physics like uh, things to do with like you said time travel and um you know freezing time and um switching bodies between two people and things like that uh, swapping consciousnesses each episode kind of uh, follows a different character who lives in this town who and the town has been totally um enhanced but also kind of taken over by this technology and a lot of it looks like a regular old town but like you know the camera will sweep across a uh 
typical suburban house and it'll look like a regular house, but then just sitting out next to it is like what appears to be a nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. Um, or there'll be these big towers with kind of glowing blue uh, things on them just kind of sticking out above the trees. And everyone is totally like, everyone is so used to it. All the characters don't even acknowledge it. Right. And there's this implication that like the technology was uh, almost like used in some sort of like interstellar battle or something like that but it's all kind of uh fallen into disuse and a lot of it is rusted and kind of uh just kind of cluttering up the place Mm -hmm. and unlike black mirror which presents stories that are very dark and very kind of moralistic in that you see characters interacting with technology and misusing it and then learning a very heavy lesson Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a lot more kind of quiet and contemplative. It doesn't feel quite as um, uh, quite as dire. The stakes aren't don't feel quite as intense. So it makes for a very kind of reflective watching experience. I, I, oh, okay. I, it's uh, people have also compared it to Stranger Things in that there's kind of like a secret research facility in a small town, right? But there's no horror elements here. Like it's it's all very uh, it's kind of quiet stories about Americans who whose lives have been changed for the better, but also um, there's still dangers at foot, uh, d- dangers that they have to be aware of. And they, they shouldn't, like, push the technology that they have too far. Right. Okay. So, like, is there, like, a villain in this story? Or is it, like, kind of like uh, every man has this, like, internal um, conflict within himself kind of story? It's more internal conflict, yeah. Like, um, the the first, um, the first story is kind of about a young girl who... Um, and also, also the, the time scale in this is totally weird. Like, it's not clear what decade it's supposed to take place in like the characters wear clothes that could Mm -hmm. equally have been like 1950s 1960s 70s 80s kind of like that range but all of the kind of clothing and the cars and everything that would help you date it uh, is all kind of mixed together which also adds to the kind of ambiance of the thing right so when it, they talk about Tales from the Loop, the loop is the time loop? Is that what they're referring to? Uh, the loop is the name. It's kind of the uh, the casual name for that research facility. I see. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, and at the center of this research facility is this otherworldly object, this large sphere that's kind of assumed to be powering everything. But it, but this is a show that has like zero interest in exposition. You're not going <laughs> to get any characters sit down and kind of like tell you what everything you need to know to understand it. You're just supposed to, which I love. I love it about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to some of the like the individual narratives, uh, the like there's this one story about a girl who kind of finds herself unstuck in time. She, uh, uh, she ends up meeting a future mm-hmm. uh, version of herself uh, and uh, in an effort to kind of like reconnect with her mother who went missing. Um, there's another story about two teenage boys who go uh, for a walk in the woods and they come upon this rusted out sphere and one of them gets inside mm-hmm. and then they discover that it, it allows them to switch bodies. And one of them's a jock, one of them's a nerd. So they both get to have a bit of fun for the first few hours, kind of like, you know, the nerd mm-hmm. gets to see, feel what it's like to be muscular and run really fast and uh, the the jock gets to figure out. Oh wow, I can I can do math problems, and I can be really smart, and I can I have a way better job prospects all of a sudden than I would have had because I'm I'm not very smart, <laughs> you know, my my regular body. Um, but then it becomes clear that like there the jock wants to maybe take over the nerd's life because he actually prefers 
the the job prospects and uh mm, it's very black mirror ish it's a bit but it doesn't it's not as scary or as um defeatist and like depressing you, you don't you don't get the kind of gut punch that you do from from right. black mirror so right. if that's what you're looking for go back to black mirror i still love black mirror for what it does but this is a very much a much quieter contemplative kind of experience you're so dark on the inside rob <laughs> um i'm just trying to think now of the, the oh yeah and there's this other one uh another episode where a girl that we see um in that episode about the the two teenage boys right uh she's kind of put forward as a possible love interest for the nerd character but then we uh, we get a whole episode about her and how she feels like teenage love, like falling in love with uh, with other boys at her school, it's very fleeting. She wants to freeze that moment. So she comes across this, what looks like a thermos in the lake, and it turns out that it has the ability to freeze time for everyone except her. Oh, okay. And she discovers a way to kind of like run around town. She she eventually extends this power to the, a boy that she's interested in, and the two of them kind of go on this you know, they freeze time for what appears to be months and they have mm-hmm. a great time, you know, living in a fancy house and, uh, you know, taking clothes and food and anything that they want. Um, but then she has to ultimately learn a lesson about it because, you know, uh, you got to have some drama in there. But uh, well, yeah. And you can't bend time and change time without having consequences. Yeah, exactly. Come on. That's one of the tenets of basic time travel. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's those kind of things where it's like a character who's glimpsed very briefly in one episode then gets an episode of their own later down the line. Mm. And that's kind of the way that the narrative kind of glues all these people together. Um, so I'm curious to see uh, what the, the next few episodes I have left on the on the queue are going to be like. I feel like it, uh, I, th- I think again, like like Undone, they might be getting another second season out of this. So mm-hmm. really curious to see what they do with it. I, I like uh, I like sci-fi in general, and I love when you kind of get these um, these different ways of telling stories with this very um, visually arresting kind of treatment with these uh, with this kind of retro futurist hmm. uh, type of flavor. You would know way better than I do, but do you think there's a bit of a re- renaissance with sci-fi TV shows? It does seem like a lot of TV shows these days have a bit of a sci-fi bent to it. Yeah, or maybe I'm just watching too many of them and telling you about them on the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but yeah, other than Star Trek, I, I can't remember another sci-fi TV show that was... Maybe Serenity, but Serenity was such like had such a cult following and ended up being canceled as well. Yeah, true. But now we've got like Altered Carbon, we've got this. The Expanse. The Expanse. Um even Love Westworld. Expanse. Yeah. Well, Westworld's specialty cable, so that's maybe a different story. But I do feel like because there's so many different services and so many different platforms, it seems like sci-fi. Uh, all of a sudden had has a platform that it never had before yeah i think you're right about that i think also the the it, uh sci-fi of years past was also held back a little bit by production technology, technology. Um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's kind of ironic but uh you know people would think of like uh shows from the period you're describing where you know oh there's going to be like an alien who looks like mr war from start from uh next gen <laughs> you know and there's going to be uh yeah you know and there's going to be like kind of shaky cgi but now cgi has gotten so good that you can have something like Tales from the Loop where these kind of retro future kind of rusted out bits of advanced technology are in the same shots as regular suburban America. Exactly. And it all blends perfectly well and you don't think of it as CGI. You're able to suspend your disbelief. I think that that was probably a, a 
big part of kind of allowing sci-fi to feel less kind of jokey and Doctor Who-esque and more <laughs> uh, more legit, maybe, for your average viewer? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, like, the popularity of genres kind of ebbs and flows, right? So if you think about it, the, before The Irishman, we had, like, gone through a period where there were not a lot of significant or even good gangster films. And then same with sci-fi now, where I feel like it's either ramped up or starting to and it's actually kind of exciting. Yeah. And I would recommend you check out Tales from the Loop. Like I uh, I know you're you're not a huge uh, Black Mirror guy, uh, <laughs> but too scary. I feel like <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of people a lot of people like you who feel the same way about Black Mirror. Like um uh, for some people like that kind like I said like that gut punch of the of what happens to these poor people in in uh in that show. Um it's too much for people and, and it's too much like our own yes. reality that it, it really yes. spooks you. So the nice thing about this show is that it is very obviously like very different from from uh, our day to day life, but also similar enough that it doesn't feel like a you know right. uh, a secret mission in uncharted space kind of thing. Like it's not that far out there, but it's still happening on Earth, but just kind of an enhanced version of right. Earth. Speaking of stories about Earth, so I watched Tiger Tail, ah. which is um, this new Netflix film that just debuted um, a few days ago. And it's about an immigrant family. So that's as like a salt of the earth story as you can get. Yeah. There's no aliens, no like technology going on. It's just a film about people. And it's directed by Alan Yang, who was previously a writer on Parks and Rec, which is a great show, by the way. And um, he is born in California to Taiwanese parents. And I feel like it's important to say this because I think... Because of who he is, um, the film turned out a certain way. You're my father. I don't even know how to talk to you. I never have. There are many things I never told you. So this is a film about Grover, who um, immigrates from Taiwan to America sometime in the post-World War II period, and it's shown in three separate sort of timelines. So one, when he's a kid in Taiwan, second, when he's a young adult in Taiwan, and then third, um, when he's an old man in America and he's divorced and he's estranged from his two kids. Oh, I like that. Okay, so like it's uh, there's a bit of a moonlight kind of flavor to it? A little bit. No gay sex or anything, but... (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) so the film itself i would say is fine um i think the plot is really uneven i think anytime you have to juggle three separate timelines it's very difficult and i don't think he did a very good job of this this is a movie by the way where like i on purpose asked my parents to watch it with me because they were obviously we all of us were born in taiwan but it was their um period like they were kids um when Grover was a kid. It was like the same, they occupied the same time period. Right. The thing is like when you're making a film about immigrants, I think it's very important to get things right. I think it's important to get the historical sequence of events right. I think it's important to get the customs right. And I think it's really important to get the language right. And when the language isn't right, as it is in Tiger Tail, it really, really grinds my gears. It's kind of like, if you had a film about an Irish dude and he ended up having a Scottish accent, uh, 
if you were Asian and you couldn't tell the difference, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be distracting at all. But if you're Irish or Scottish or you had a year for accents and that happens, it's super distracting. It's like when Tom Cruise was in Far Away and he did that, I think it was his Irish accent and it was so bad, it just completely killed the film. And for this film, because the cast is all Asian, but not all of them are from Taiwan, the accents in the language really threw me off. So for example, so Zima, who plays like, if you see him, he plays like the Asian dad in every single Hollywood production. It's kind of fucking annoying, actually. <laughs> um, he's from Hong Kong. So when he speaks Mandarin, there's a Hong Kong accent to it. Never mind the fact that he can't even speak Taiwanese. But young Grover, kid Grover, speaks exclusively Taiwanese. And then young adult Grover speaks exclusively Mandarin of like with a Taiwanese accent. And you get all these things. And then what happens is you don't have a character in three stages, but are obviously clearly the same character as in Moonlight. You have three different people in three different time periods. And the only thing that connects them is their name. Right. And so it bothers me because I'm an immigrant and I kind of can notice things that are not true or... I wouldn't say true because maybe this is biographical on some level for Alan and his family. I don't even know. But say, for example, there's a scene where Grover um, has a daughter and his daughter has like a re- had a really poor performance at a piano recital and he's pissed off. He's kind of berating her in the car. But instead of berating her in Taiwanese, um, which he spoke as young Grover, he's berating her in Mandarin. And whenever you're angry or you're emotional, if you speak two languages, you always kind of default to the language that is your mother tongue. Right. So I know when I when my parents got pissed off at me, they wouldn't berate me in English. They berate me in Taiwanese or Mandarin, whatever language is most comfortable for them, because you're like so emotional. You're so wrapped up. um, You kind of just default to whatever your, I guess, normal base is. Right. And so there are little things like that. And then there is a clear distinction, in my opinion, of people from Taiwan who can speak Taiwanese and people from Taiwan who can't speak Taiwanese because you occupy two very different periods of Taiwanese history. And so if you occupy those two different periods, your politics are tinged with that environment you're in. There's a scene where Grover and his wife, who is supposedly from Taiwan, they're in their you know, one bedroom, small apartment in America that they just immigrated to. And she offers to cook up this dish called Mapo Dofu. And the moment she said that, my parents and I just kind of looked at each other. We're just like, no Taiwanese person in their right mind would ever cook that dish because that's not a Taiwanese dish. Maybe that character was like a Taiwanese person from mainland China that came over and maybe that's why she cooks it. But if Grover spoke Taiwanese when he was a kid, then it's not a dish he would necessarily like either. So there's all these like little things that you think about that I don't think people who didn't have that immigrant experience would really know. Alan was born in California and, and, and from what I know, probably grew up in the States and didn't frequent Taiwan or, or didn't even grow up in Taiwan at all. So I wonder if other people like me who have grown up in both countries feel the same way or if it's just that apparent to them that there's certain little things that just 
don't really mix and it kind of takes you out of the film because now you're questioning everything you're like instead of a biographical heartfelt story this is clearly just a movie where they cast any person that looks asian regardless of how good their uh their mandarin dialect is or their Taiwanese even well that brings two things to mind actually because the first thing i wonder about is uh is this a small production that maybe didn't have the budget or the production time to get a proper uh, dialect coach in to work with the actors. Because I've, uh, you know, in watching some of the, I think it's Vanity Fair who posts the the videos with the guy, the the language expert, the dialect expert. Yeah, the dialect expert. guy, yes. yes. Um, and he's talked about how one of the, the, the potential pitfalls that a movie might encounter is if they rush a movie into production with the actors too quickly and they don't have the mo- money and the time to get Mm -hmm. a coach to work with actors for like weeks on end to practice an accent. And if the actors are just kind of winging it or they might just default to what is most comfortable for them. And, you know, that's maybe how they got Mm -hmm. more Mandarin in there um, or the less Taiwanese. The other thing that I I wonder about is um, I was reading about how the reception of the movie The Farewell um, in China Mm -hmm. and how, you know, that story played very well in America and English speaking countries because the custom of like not informing uh, an elderly relative of their illness seems so strange to us. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And of course it is, you know, it is about a Chinese American woman played by Aquafina. Apparently the movie performed very poorly in China because nobody saw nobody in China thought of that practice as strange and that's how you know they got it right though yeah right so uh they you know that ended up being a movie that was more of an american movie even though the majority of the dialogue was in chinese um right it performed a lot better and connected a lot better to non-chinese people just because of the the nature of the plot so i don't know if like either of those situations are playing into tiger tail at all whether it was like a preparation thing or it was just like it's a movie made by americans for americans that's an interesting question so first of all i don't know what the budget is but it doesn't seem like it would be a movie that costs a lot and even if it did they do cast some like names that are like really prominent or famous in asian acting circles like the main character Zima is like like i said the asian hollywood dad right um joan chen um she played she has a minor role but she's comes out in this too and she was um quite popular in the 80s and 90s and then there's the woman who plays grover's mom is a really famous taiwanese actress and she speaks taiwanese throughout the whole thing and and it's very clear and very obvious that just not even knowing her that her her taiwanese is like she is from taiwan just because the way, way she speaks i don't know if it's an excuse. And if you look at the production team, it's still mostly Caucasians. And Alan himself, I would consider more American than Taiwanese or any other Asian nationality. I would hate to say they didn't care, but I would think maybe that it's they don't have the right ear for it. So maybe to you, like um, Mandarin is Mandarin. But to me, there are different accents when it comes to spoken mandarin right well well the the comparison you made between like uh um an irish accent scottish accent is is probably like that's that's very understandable like that makes a lot of sense yeah the other movie that that pops into my head that's kind of in this same uh situation is uh the kevin spacey vehicle from the early 2000s the shipping news 
Right. Right. Yes. Have you read the book? The book is excellent. I've not read the book, but I remember when that movie came out and that was one of, uh, of course, that's set predominantly in Newfoundland, the province in Canada where yes, I'm from. Yes. Uh, so when that movie came out, there was a, so much excitement in Newfoundland that there was this big Hollywood movie that, you know, Julianne Moore and Kevin Spacey and Kate Blanchett were all involved in. It was all shooting in this little town. And, and then? And then the movie came out and they... <laughs> Not only were the accents all over the place um, or non-existent, but the uh, they were getting certain things about the culture very, very wrong. Like, yeah, and it pisses you off, right? Sure. And like Kevin Spacey's character works for he's supposed to be like uh, working for a newspaper. There's no newspaper servicing a tiny town of 500 people <laughs> in Newfoundland. They're lucky if they can get the, the paper from the capital city on a regular basis. Um, and then there's uh, the probably the biggest one for a lot of diehard Newfoundlanders was connecting up to what you were saying about that dish that served in Tiger Tail. Uh, there's a bit in the shipping news where they serve Kevin Spacey's character uh, seal flipper pie. Yeah, come on, man. And it's presented in the movie as having a top and bottom crust and cut into a triangle the way you'd expect like a slice of apple pie to look. Normal you know, pie, but yeah. Actual seal flipper pie served in Newfoundland is this kind of black tar looking mash mess of stuff that i don't personally l- yeah, like myself not appetizing it's, you know but it's a traditional dish and it's it looks like a right. big yes. lump of tar on the plate and any any like diehard newfoundlander who watched that movie was immediately offended because they were like the and then the question becomes was it a mistake where they like they made an artistic uh, choice because they didn't understand the culture or were they making an artistic choice because they were worried if they presented it the accurate way, right. people who were not from that culture would be confused? And that's a tricky line to right. ride as a filmmaker, you know? I am so glad. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just about to say my next point is, I, like to answer your second question as well, I do think this film was made for Asian Americans. It is not made for Asian audiences because Asian audiences, would I think, would have the same nitpicks as me. The, the the clothing right the clothing is right the the settings right but the language and the food two like the one two of the most important aspects of any culture is completely wrong I, I do get the sense that if you're gonna make a film for Asian audiences you need an Asian film crew if you're gonna make an European film for European audiences you need it you need an European film crew I think there are very few instances where there's that cross-cultural, production and they manage to nail everything right especially when there isn't like a big uh action-oriented plot that is kind of blowing you past it like if exactly it's about people it, in their natural environment that's when you can really trip up exactly so my mom watched the farewell too kind of on my suggestion because i was partly curious what to what she thought about it and she's like yeah there's like we same situation it was a good film the lots of situations but she but the one thing she said i remember she's like aquafina had it down she actually acts like a a kid who was raised in the states Mm -hmm. everything from her fish out of water moments when she go back goes back home to just like her her general attitude towards all these like cultural norms i guess in tiger tail when grover is growing through these three different stages in life, there's very little connective tissue and it really feels like three different characters. And I think that kind of ruins it. Not to mention too, like maybe the score independently of the film is pretty good, but in the film it's very misused because there's this like string sort of solemn music 
um, that plays whenever old Grover is on the screen. Uh. And it's almost on the spot every single time he appears on that screen, that soundtrack plays. It gets to the point where it's kind of like the, the bell with the dog. Where like, um, when the music comes on and he's on the screen, you immediately, you're just like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to feel sad at this moment. Right. Um, but it's too on the nose it, and it becomes too repetitive and it just loses its effect by the end. Right. That's another thing. Uh, there are certain shots that in the film, like they're framed very, very well and they kind of linger. So there's a, there's a sort of like emotional pull it wants you to have, but at the same time, you're kind of want it becomes awkward because you linger for just a little bit too long and you're not exactly sure why. So for like Terrence Malick, he shoots a lot of mountains and stuff because he really wants you to feel it. And there's actually, you know, moving clouds and stuff and, you, and he's really matched well with the music. Um, in this tiger tail, it just misses the spot a little bit. So it becomes a little awkward and repetitive oh that's too bad well i mean i, I might still check it out just to I, I, you should check it out and and, so it, th- and then maybe like figure out how i react to it versus as somebody who had, knows nothing about the the culture and you know determine whether not having that that knowledge means that i can suspend my disbelief a bit more or the first scene is really good because it sets up this like political tension between people from taiwan and and the ruling political party the kmt at the time but it never becomes an issue throughout the rest of the film when it's implied that there are certain issues that are connected to it. And that's another thing that I was just like, that subplot should have been something, should have been another conflict, and it could have added so much more to this film. It's, yeah, it's like a two, two and a half out of four. Like, if it's, it's a relatively short 90 minutes, so it won't take up too much of your time, but it does drag. <laughs> Let me just warn you right now. It uh, does drag. Yeah, it just goes to show that like you can have uh, 90 minutes, you can have three hours, and they can feel like uh, the opposite depending on how it's used. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that that just leaves us with the the other movie that we we're going to uh, talk about in this episode, and that's uh, something that is uh, a little bit old by this point. I mean, it uh, it, it hit the festival circuit uh, back in September-ish uh, 2019, um, and we talked about it a little bit in our TIFF episode because uh, our friend uh, Peter had seen it uh, during TIFF, and now I finally circled back around and watched it. Uh, so this is the movie uh, Dolomite Is My Name, which... Uh, Actually, it's a it's a a similar kind of experience to what I was picking up from Tiger Tail because it's a it's set in a world that I don't understand at all. (laughs) Black exploitation. Black. I mean, like I've seen I've seen parodies of black exploitation. I've seen uh, movies like Jackie Brown, which uh, feature like a prominent black exploitation star like um, uh, Pam Greer. But uh, I do not. I'm not a student of the actual black exploitation films at all and i i know about them and i know about you right. know if somebody did a parody and used some of the tropes i would recognize them um, but this is a this is a biopic or you know maybe a, a tongue-in-cheek biopic of rudy ray moore who was a prominent black exploitation star in the late 70s early 80s and he was a guy who was a you know he had kind of fallen through a bunch of different careers he had uh tried his hand at being a a recording artist he tried his hand at being a stand-up comic and uh you know he was kind of coming up empty in a lot of these things and he finally 
discovered this character of Dolomite, who's kind of like a a pimp character with this habit of getting up on stage and uh, bragging about all of his uh, violent exploits and his success with women. And it's often accompanied with this kind of like jungle beat kind of bongo drum kind of thing that he that he cooked up and he was he he got a lot of success with this he recorded a bunch of comedy albums he had a small following in the uh, the black community in LA and he took it on tour um, and then he decided that he wanted to go aim even higher and he wanted to make a movie based on the Dolomite character and self-finance it and no one wanted to give him any money and he had to scrimp and save to get this thing made and he finally did and that's that's the the experience that's uh, documented in this movie a man slam a door in my face i just find another door i want the world to know i exist you can watch. this ain't funny and it ain't no brothers in it either if i get up in that light with my own movie i could be everywhere all at once let's bring dolomite to the screen i remember us talking back during TIFF about how this is like a bit of a comeback story for Eddie Murphy. Eh? Yes. Um, what did you think though? I mean, like I said, the, the actual uh, character of Dolomite felt very odd to me because right. I mean like his performance in general. His performance is great. Like I, I, yeah, he was, he was robbed in my opinion. Yeah. Like I, I could have uh, obviously that this was a pretty tough year for the best actor category. Um, right. And I feel like, Unfortunately, Eddie Murphy did himself no favors with a long history of, <laughs> you know, the Academy yeah. The Academy has a has a weird memory about this kind of stuff. Like after the the what was it, 2006, when he was nominated for uh, Dreamgirls, but then he had made Norbit the same year. Yeah. And he got roasted or it cost him because of that. Yeah. It basically nuked, nuked his chances because uh, the two movies came out too close to each other and people could not understand. People in the Academy could not conscience giving him the award right, based yeah. because the Norbit was still so fresh in their minds. And then, you know, he followed that up with a series of other movies like, uh, you know, one where he played an alien who lives inside of a ship that looks like Eddie Murphy. Well, yeah, he kind of stopped caring for a while. Yeah, and just made a bunch of, like, really bad um, sequels and uh, to the Shrek movies. And This is what Adam Sandler's going to do because we didn't give him an award for Uncut Gems. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously he's gonna get back at us he's he literally said that he was going to do that i think he said if i don't yeah, get any, exactly. i'm going to make the worst movie that uh what you all think is the worst movie ever made just exactly you. yeah yeah and i'm gonna make millions from it yeah so props to him for doing that so but yeah but i think that that was ultimately what kind of uh hurt eddie murphy this this cycle because um, now that he's kind of reestablished himself, maybe they'll take him seriously in his, in his next big role. But this movie is stacked with so many other great performers, too. Like yes. you got uh, Craig Robinson in there, Keegan-Michael Key, uh, Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes was hilarious. You know what I did really appreciate about this biopic, though? What's that? Usually when you have a biopic about like the beat up black guy in this white male dominated world, there's a bunch of like resistive forces usually like casual racism or overt racism or just people who like seriously doubt him and want to sabotage him but we don't really get that kind of villain in this film which i really appreciate so like all in all like even though it's making fun of dolomite at times you you're kind of going on this journey with him and you're rooting for him and the movie's rooting for him too um which i feel is a very nice change of pace yeah 
I really appreciated that it didn't have the sniveling villain. Like in Ford v Ferrari, you had that Josh Lucas guy, right? <laughs> Where he's just there just to be sniveling. And you didn't really get that in Dolomite. And I thought that was a really great choice. Um, it, I think it actually took some balls to do that too, right? Um, because you don't really have a villain. No, the villain is more so the, like the, just the dog eat dog. Exactly. The realities of the business itself. Yes, exactly. Um, there's just like, there's no, like, I'm going to get you kind of character. Um, so again, much appreciated. Yeah. And so, uh, it's, um, and it's, it's got a bit of a, I think somebody has said this better than I did recently on Twitter, but, uh, it's got this kind of like let's put on a show quality to it that works works yes. really well in uh, quarantine because we're all kind of like <laughs> hold up on our own. And uh, this is a movie about a bunch of people kind of like getting together and doing something mostly just for the fun of it. And with the kind yeah. of like hope that maybe it leads to some box office success, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're content to just kind of make something for the sake of it and uh, to kind of represent themselves on screen. But I think that. Uh, that about does it for this episode. We've uh, uh, we've gone through a couple of shows, a couple of movies, uh, but highly recommend Undone and Tales from the Loop. If you uh, burned through whatever show that uh, you've been catching up on recently and you're wondering, you know, have I finally reached the end of Netflix? <laughs> the answer is no. No, there's always something else you can try. Uh, and then uh, maybe steer a little bit clear of Tiger Tail. Depends on how familiar you are with the culture. I would say... If you're looking for a good movie, skip it. If you're looking for a m- movie about immigrants, skip it. But if you're just genuinely curious about Asian culture and more Taiwan, um, give it a shot. It's a nine, short 90-minute viewing. So. And then, of course, we, we both liked uh, Dolomite, so uh, yes. that's a recommendation from us as well. And you can look forward to maybe a, a few posts on uh, the website uh, about some of these things. in the. Yes, uh, I will have something up for Tiger Tail. But until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.